We're going to be looking in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, Ephesians chapter 2. The series that we are a part of this morning, if you're visiting here for the first time, is uh, called Our Peace in Christ, as we are looking at uh, this great peace mission uh, that God accomplished through Jesus Christ. I'd invite you to stand together at this time as we look in verse 11, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, a message I call the way we were. Wherefore, remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. And may God bless the reading of his word today. It's my prayer. You may be seated. Our peace in Christ. Paul is addressing primarily in our text today the Gentiles uh, who were now saved and a part of the church at Ephesus. And he is talking to them about their past, their past before they knew Christ, their past when they were in idolatry and paganism, their past uh, before they were a part of the church at Ephesus. And he will move from the Gentiles very quickly to also include the Jewish Christians as well in verse 16, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, that's the Gentiles, and to those who were near, that was the Jews, for through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit to the Father. The both, referring to the Jews and the Gentiles. Now we've noted before in our series that this relates uh, to all of humanity. Uh, The Jews, of course, are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the physical descendants of Abraham were referred to in this passage as Jews, a part then of the nation of Israel, both then and still today. Uh, Then there is another group, and that is the Gentiles. Who are they? Everybody who isn't Jewish. Uh, That's uh, the way that goes. Uh, These two groups of people were separated in practice. They were separated by the law of Moses that forbid the Jews, for example, to enter into the home of a Gentile person. They were separated, but not only by doctrine, by religious beliefs, uh, but also by the feelings of their own heart. For the most part, between the Jews and the Gentiles, there was a static uh, kind of hostility, deep-seated, down to the core. I could leave this passage this morning in its natural historical setting and experience a certain degree of safety. We could discuss then the world of the first century long ago, not the world of the 21st century. It'd be nice and tidy to talk about how the ancient Romans and the ancient Greeks hated the ancient Jews and how the ancient Jews uh, returned those feelings in kind. The message then would be about how God reached into that world with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a people who were separated from Him, therefore, and who were separated from each other. And by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
he brought them together. Now, in a way, the message will be that because that's what we call its historical context and setting. But I've never been one just to swim around down in the shallow end where it's safe. Um, And the fact is that wherever people are separated from God, whenever people are separated from God, and therefore are separated from each other, then the message of Ephesians chapter 2 applies directly to them. It's part of God's Word. And that means it's just as true to us today in the 21st century as it was in the 1st century, although in some ways the location of this hostility may have changed and the nature of it may have changed to a certain degree but maybe not all that much. Many of you, like me, grew up in a world where a way of living known as separate but equal was dying. Uh, Others of you have never known an America like that, and I'm glad you haven't, and I hope it never comes back. But I grew up in that world. I've told you before that our little town uh, in South Arkansas, I mean a tiny little town, yet we had two laundromats. And and one of them had a sign on it that said white only. Now, we never went there because we had our own washer and dryer at home. But I remember vividly the time when our washer went out and we had to go up there and our dryer was still fine, but our washer was out. And so we had to go up there and wash the clothes at the laundromat. Well, I had learned to read, and I had been looking at that sign, white only. So I looked quickly in my mama's laundry basket, and there was all kind of colored clothes in there. (laughs) And I told her, Mom, you can't wash those clothes in there. Were you really that naive? Yeah. She very quickly explained to me that had nothing to do with the color of clothes. I was surprised to find out what it really meant. It was about the color of your skin. And in case anybody did not know, the one with the white only was painted white, and the other one was painted brown. Desegregation, you see, came very slowly to a little town in South Arkansas, but it did come. And you know what happened? We went from having two laundromats to zero. That closed them down. That happened in a lot of towns. The animosity that was created by those experiences lasted for a couple of decades. There would be some who would say that the animosity is still there and they'd probably be right. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of fear. When they started putting our schools together, it was tough. It was tough. It was scary. Meanwhile, we were fighting a cold war and a hot war between capitalism and socialism. We still are. In other parts of the world, it was religion. 
It was the Catholics and the Protestants in Northern Ireland. It was Islam and everything else in Croatia and Serbia and later Iran and then Iraq and Afghanistan. Hostility, hatred, anger, wars, both hot and cold. Today our country is again torn apart by hatred and animosity. It's getting worse. It's very real. I'm not even going to spend time this morning trying to prove it to you. I'm going to assume that you know that it is out there, that it's very real. The hostility exists. In the book of Ephesians, when we're talking about people who are at odds with each other and they have this antagonism toward each other, hostility, hatred, was all boiled into one word, the word enmity, enmity, E-N-M-I-T-Y, enmity. What's it mean? It describes a settled state of anger, antagonism, hostility toward other people, a settled state, enmity. Ephesians 2.16 says, And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. You see, when Jesus Christ stepped into the first century world, deeply divided as it was by people with all of this hostility toward each other, there was a Jew and everybody who wasn't Jewish, and there was hatred going both ways and division and separation. Jesus Christ stepped into that world and was crucified on Golgotha's crest, but he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he came out of the grave promising life and liberty to all who believe. If the Son, therefore, he said, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And one one of the things he did was he put to death the enmity. The way it plays out in a practical way is that God took the Gentile and he offered him salvation in Jesus Christ. If they would only bow before the cross and say Jesus Christ is Lord, they would be gloriously saved and they'd be right with God. The Jew could do the same thing and the plan then was that when the, when the Jewish person confessed that Jesus Christ was Lord and is saved, then he would be right with God. And at the same time, that Gentile person would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and he would be saved and he'd be right with God. And the plan is that if you take this and make them right with God and take this and make them right with God, they would also then be right with each other. That's the way it works. It's the way it was designed. That's the way God was going to put to death the enmity. But the very fact that Ephesians chapter 2 exists in the New Testament and many other passages like it would tell us that bringing the Jew and the Gentile together in the same church, teaching them to love each other and get along with one another, was not a seamless process. As much as we would like to think that it all just went completely well, it didn't. You remember that vision of the great sheet that Simon Peter saw of the, all those animals coming down? And 
Same time, getting that message from Cornelius, go with him, head took an angel, go with him, nothing doubting. Don't be afraid, I'm with you. Great step of faith when Simon Peter stepped across the threshold into a Gentile's home, preached the gospel, and Cornelius and his household were gloriously saved. You'd think that finished it all, but of course, no. You'll find it in every single epistle. There was instruction about how they were to get along, how they were to relate. And you can only imagine what potlucks were like in the first century churches. <laughs> Who made this? <laughs> What's in this? Uh, you think they had a little trouble along those? Well, sure they did. Sure they did. Some of it played out right before our eyes in the book of Acts because there was a time when Simon Peter was in Antioch and he was eating with the Gentiles until some of the folks from Jerusalem came up and then lo and behold, even Simon Peter, even Barnabas of all people, Paul said, was carried away. It's Galatians 2. It wasn't a seamless thing. It took some doing. It still does. There's something in us called the flesh and I want you to know the flesh is a willing participant. Listen to me this morning. The flesh is a willing participant in enmity and hostility. It likes it. And it, once it's got it, it likes to hold on to it. Now, you may be a quick-tempered kind of fella or, 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 or lady. You, you might be a very patient kind of person. But I think whether you're quick-tempered or patient, we can all say one thing. Once you get a good belly full of hostility towards something else, there is something in you that likes to hang on to it. We feed it and nourish it, and we don't turn loose of it very good. That's the flesh. If there wasn't something in us that liked the enmity, Facebook would be about half the size it is. And there'd be a whole lot of TV programs that wouldn't even be on the air because nobody would watch this stupid stuff. I mean, it's not like we don't have enough drama in our life. We've got to go home and watch it play out on TV. Really? Get the outdoor channel and watch somebody go kill something. My goodness, that's... <laughs> that's... I probably shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. Wasn't in the notes. I just slipped out. Today's hot cultural buttons, of course, aren't so much ethnic, not to say that there's still not ethnic division in this country and hostility. There is. But I would say that the primary source of the hatred we see in our country and division, the enmity, relates to our worldviews to our political persuasions, liberal or conservative, Republican or Democrat. Let me give you something today. Wherever the enmity flourishes, the message of the cross of Jesus Christ is on the decline. Wherever the enmity is flourishing, the message of the cross is on the decline. You've seen it. I've alluded to it before. I mentioned it again today that the Gallup poll that's been taking these religious surveys about every five years uh, reported for the first time since they've been doing this, all the way back into the 1930s, for the first time, 
the numbers of people who claim church affiliation, who are members of a church and somewhat active. For the first time this last week, it showed up as being at the 50% range. That's down from 70% in the last two decades. Most of that decline has come in the last 10 years. We've dropped over 1% per year in America for the last 10 years. You think our country is divided now? You're troubled sometimes about some of the directions, wondering what's going to happen. Think about what's going to happen to America if this trend continues. And it's 30%. When you look around today at all of the religious innovation that you see going on in churches across this country, and you see so much of it, I mean, there's just anything. Listen, a lot of that has come in the last 20 years because we see these numbers declining. And so many, not just one or two, but so many are trying to come up to something that will appeal to people and bring them in. I'll admit to being, I've lived long enough, I guess I can just settle down and admit that I'm just old school. But by being old school, I'm not talking about being old-fashioned. I'm talking about I still believe that the Word of God is powerful. I still believe that the only hope of this country is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not so different I'll give us the idea that we have increased and improved our, our technology. I'll give us that. We're certainly a tech generation. We've certainly improved our communication around the world. Well, I'll, I'll give us that. But aside from that, we're still the same at our heart and core that we've always been. And God hasn't changed. Jesus Christ is still Jesus Christ, the gospel is still the gospel. He is still the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. I believe the hope of this country is in preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and teaching uh, the word of God to people and the truth of God to people. That's because our greatest need is to be right with God. Because Once we're right with God, we can be right with one another. Jesus started a church while he was here. There was room in that church for both Jews and Gentiles, although, as we've noted, it took a while for them to get there. Even in that very first group that Jesus called together, let's remember, there was room for Matthew the publican and Simon the zealot. You talk about being on the opposite ends of the political spectrum. Those people were able then to put aside apparently their, their differences and their background in order to serve heaven's king and advance his kingdom together. And they lived out this passage in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how they did it. Living this out then, living out this peace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ requires us to remember some things. And what this passage calls us to remember 
is, is where we were. And really, really, we'll discuss this over just a couple of things. He talks about, first of all, their great spiritual problem in verse 11. He said, therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision, but what is called circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, their great spiritual problem. Immediately, Paul addresses the feelings that these two groups had toward each other. Wherever that kind of hostility and hatred exists between two different groups of people, they always come up with labels and names to call each other that are derogatory in nature. In the first century, uh, the Gentiles were called by the Jews uncircumcision. You need to understand that is an ethnic slur. That's what it was. The Jews intended it that way. That's what they called them. The, Jew, the Gentiles responded by calling them circumcision, something that they found repulsive and offensive. Now today this is nothing more than a medical procedure done on little boys that mainly has to do with hygiene and depending on who you believe with or listen to, uh, maybe has some health benefits. But for them, for the Jew, it was a sign of their covenant identity with Abraham. And to the Gentile, it was something repulsive that they equated with being Jewish. All the hostility between these two groups of people then was boiled down to something really kind of silly in a way. A medical procedure. Just... <laughs> Do you see it? And before we, we look too far down our noses at the people of the first century, let's understand what we've done with something as simple as skin pigmentation. You see, all this hostility that exists between groups of people uh, very commonly then is boiled down to something, something that may not seem to be on the surface that big of a deal. I want us to understand this morning, it doesn't take a lot for the devil to create hate in the hearts of people. It doesn't take a lot for the devil to create animosity in the hearts of people. He can take a little thing and blow it up into something huge in our life simply, simply by creating and fanning the flames of hatred and resentment. Paul blasts through all of that by talking about the real issues, the issues that matter in this separation of humanity. Number one, people were without Christ. Number one issue. People were without Christ. They still are. When we look out over the world at large, we can divide it up biblically between two sides. There are those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior and are headed to heaven, and those who do not and are headed for a crisis eternity the Bible calls hell. People are without Christ. Not only that, he says, but they were without the commonwealth of Israel. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul asks the question, What advantage has the Jew, or what is the prophet of circumcision? Much in every way, he said, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God, the spokesmen of God. We're almost completely Jewish in the Old Testament. 
God communicated His Word to the Jewish people. And if you wanted to know God in the Old Testament, you had to know Him through the Jewish people because that was where God had revealed Himself. Jerusalem was a place where God had said His name. The temple was a place where He had promised to meet with people. But for the Gentiles, they were outside the commonwealth of Israel, and then because they were without Christ and without the commonwealth of Israel, then they were without the covenants. God had made special promises to Israel. Circumcision was a sign of that. The Gentile people then only had access in a very limited way. They could believe in Israel's God. They could follow Israel's law. And then they could go to the temple in Jerusalem where there was a place called the Court of the Nations, or as we more commonly know it, the Court of the Gentiles. But now since circumcision was only for the male descendants of Abraham, let's remember the Old Testament temple also contained a court of the women. Because all of those covenant blessings and promises, they applied primarily to the male descendants of Abraham. That's the way it was. It's no wonder then Paul would say something like the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. After living under and serving God under the rigid requirements of the law that no man had ever lived up to before, suddenly there came the one who met the criteria of that law and who offered us liberty to all who believe. No wonder. What a great message. So... When he looked at the Jewish people, he saw them, but he also saw the Gentiles in our text. And he gave to us their great spiritual problem. And then there was a great practical result. We're almost done. He says they had no hope and were without God in the world. They were hopeless. Now, the people that Paul addressed might quickly have argued to the contrary. Well, I'm not hopeless. I don't live a hopeless life. They might have had a hope for a better day or a brighter future or a better lifestyle or even a a better way of life. People don't fare well when they don't have any hope at all. Others have uh, uh, tried to discuss uh, and, and really struggled over understanding how that these people in the world could be said to have no hope. But you understand that God communicated His truth to the Jewish people. And John and, and, and John chapter 1 and verse 1 told us that Jesus came into his own and his own received him not. And the fact that they rejected Jesus Christ was proof positive of their lostness. So the lost, the Jews, were intended to be God's witness to the world at large. But the Jews themselves were lost. Why then would he say that there was no hope for the Gentiles? Well, when God's representatives themselves were lost. That left them exactly as Paul described. There was no hope. And they were without God in the world. Those who are living a hopeless life live an angry life. They show that anger toward those who have a better life. These these people who have a better life, they they must know some secret unknown to to me or maybe have some privilege that, that I don't have. Hopelessness breeds that kind of hostility, that anger and hatred and hostility flourishes. It's inconceivable 
to those who don't know Jesus Christ that the primary difference between those who live a life of hope and those who live a hopeless life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want hope this morning, hope has a name, J-E-S-U-S. Not only are they hopeless, he said they're godless. It does not mean that they have no deity in their life. It means they don't know the one true God. The only way to know Him is through Jesus Christ. That's not a bigoted statement. That is a biblical statement. It says it right here in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There is no other way to have access with God than through Jesus Christ and His shed blood. That's it. There is no other means of salvation except believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul did not mean to imply that they were atheists. They were not. Most of the people Paul addressed worshipped other gods, false gods indeed, but objects of their worship and adoration and devotion just the same. Similarly, false religions are flourishing today. And we can see and, and be disturbed by the growth of things like Wicca that are flirting with the demonic pagan religions of the past and trying to revitalize those, some not just flirting. Animism is growing. More and more we hear people talking about the universe as if it is a personality, as if it has creative power. They speak of the earth as a personality and their devotion is given. That's animism. When you begin to take inanimate objects and, and ascribe to them uh, some kind of power and personality, that's animism. That's the name of it by definition. The Bible speaks of it. Paul talked about it in Romans chapter 1. People worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator. Animism. Flourishing in our world today. But I would have to say that probably the one whose devotion is rising the fastest is the one that always rises the fastest when men turn away from God. And that's the God of me. The me God. The me God tells me to do whatever me wants to do. It tells me that whatever's right is whatever me thinks is right or what me says is right. And the orthodox then, me God, tells me that whatever me wants to do is absolutely right. And if you tell me that's wrong, then you're contradicting the me God who told me that me is right. And I think you know where this ends up because the me God is going to let you down. <laughs> it always does. Uh, me is going to make you miserable. Me is going to leave you hopeless and helpless. Oh, but there's an alternative. I've got good news today. I don't think it's hopeless. When I see America turning further and further away from God, that just means we've got a lot more work to do. The gospel of Jesus Christ was placed into exactly that kind of world, divided by hostility and racial animosity, and people hated each other, and they were hopeless and helpless. And the gospel did very well. And the gospel will still do very well today if we'll just get it out of the box. Turn it loose. <laughs> Spread it out into this world as we as God's people get out and live out the truth of this passage. What's the truth? The truth is uh, that the Bible 
And, and remember I told you I wasn't much at being safe, so let me just go ahead and say it this morning. The truth is that the Bible is neither Republican or Democrat. That's the truth. The Bible is the Word of God. The Word of God applies equally well to Republicans and Democrats. You know what it says? It says the same thing to both of them. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It means that every one of us has failed and not one of us, not one of us, not one of us, including this guy, lives up to the standards that God has placed to us in the Word of God. But it tells us if we believe on Jesus Christ, the mighty Holy Spirit of God comes in and lives in us. And what we could never do on our own, He does. He begins to change us to make us more like Jesus Christ. So that this peace that we have with God can become the peace that we live out every day. And those great truths that Jesus taught us, that you love one another. Remember that one? That you love one another as I have loved you, Jesus said. Those become the dominant characteristics of our life. Because we remember what Paul said. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I've become a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. All of my religious devotion becomes nothing more than a lot of annoying banging like the ever-ready bunny. That's all it is. Unless we love one another and love the people who are living their life without Jesus Christ. And we know they need Him. God help us to portray it as we proclaim it to the world. Let's stand together, please.